You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everyone listening here on Saturday morning and a general hello to anyone listening later by podcast. Great to have you aboard. You're on 3CR Community Radio on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie We aim to give you a little roughage with the general media malaise all about you, especially during COVID-19, which tends to accentuate the sense of social control emanating from the mainstream, either fear or sop. But it might just be me feeling that from too much TV in my downtime. Onward and outward. Today, we're going to find out about the Mojo Film Festival, put on by Schizzy Inc. to celebrate World Schizophrenia Day on Sunday the 24th of May. We follow up by looking into how all those families with no money were able to deal with the COVID homeschooling situation when they already had an issue with equipping their kids with computers and internet access. That's a question we were able to ask Kate Weller, Executive Officer at Community Information and Support Victoria, Kevin is whirring with news of the week and Dr Noah Brazil gives us an interesting discussion on a month of COVID. But first, I want to let you into some of the things that got stuck to my shoe this week. First up, what about those fabulous demonstrators at the Mantrub Hotel raising awareness of the plight of the refugees? who have been held captive there for months, even before the COVID outbreak, awaiting medical treatment, which never comes. The only people served are Serco, the private multinational with the contract to guard them. Amazing work by the demonstrators with banners, making it to all the news services. We can't say we didn't know they were there. Then there was the email by the Saturday paper. If you have any money left over after donating to 3CR over June by going to 3cr.org.au to keep us going, you could do worse than subscribe to the Saturday paper, which in my opinion is really punching above its weight in the scrutinising the utter awful politics the feds are inflicting on this country, even and maybe because they can during COVID-19. Listen up to a couple of creepy things that sent shivers up my spine as reported by the Saturday Papers editor, Madison Cognot. It would have been naive to think Corona would upend one of life's true constants, the close ties between politics, power and policy. 
with its close ties to the fossil fuel industry and generous travel and accommodation allowances for members, such as $267,345 for six months' work for the committee's chairperson, former Fortescue Metals Chief Neville Power, the government's National COVID-19 Coordination Commission, tasked with guiding the country's business sector out of lockdown, has stirred up many questions but offered few answers. Mike Seacombe points to the Commission's advisers, oddly described as appendages, namely Andrew Liveris. So how did Liveris, a man who was appointed in 2016 by Donald Trump to lead the American Manufacturing Council, a former chair and chief executive of the Dow Chemical Company, and current board of the Saudi petroleum giant Amaco, come to be appointed as an appendage to the NCCC? Well, not even a Senate inquiry could find out. Okay, that's creepy. On the same theme, the Australian Institute has started a petition. I'll put a link on the podcast page. They're calling for investment in renewables coming out of COVID, not gas. This is what they say. The Energy Minister Angus Taylor is pushing hard for a gas-fired recovery following the pandemic. The Prime Minister's hand-picked National COVID-19 Coordination Commission is stacked with former fossil fuel executives and operates without proper scrutiny, oversight or transparency. And now, another secret review conducted by a hand-picked gas executive has, surprise, surprise, recommended redirecting emissions reduction funding into failed carbon capture and storage into big emitters. New analysis from the Australian Institute's Climate and Energy Program finds that using COVID-19 recovery funding to subsidise the gas industry would create few jobs, increase emissions and lock in high energy prices. It's a lose, lose, lose strategy. Okay, that's creepy. But perhaps the creepiest thing is this from the Saturday paper. In Canberra, Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, meanwhile, is pushing for new powers to be handed to the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, that's ASIO, which would allow the agency to plant surveillance devices without a warrant, among a raft of other sweeping changes. One ASIO bill put forward by Minister Dutton on May the 5th could, without closer scrutiny, lead to cruel and inhumane Punishment, Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, Margaret Stone warned a parliamentary committee. But transparency has never been ASIO's priority, not least in recent years. Dutton is calling for the age at which people can be questioned to be lowered from 16 to 14 and to widen the scope to eject disruptive, in inverted commas, lawyers. One of his bills also strips back existing protections for journalists and potentially allows ASIO to access, without a journalistic information warrant, telecommunications data stored on an offshore server. On a more local note, finally, the verdict came in on Tuesday 
May the 19th about the 2014 Hazelwood fire that burnt for 45 days, poisoning the environment and the people, with the effects still being being felt. The operator of Victoria's defunct Hazelwood Power Station has been fined $1.56 million in the Supreme Court. Environment Victoria's campaign manager, Dr Dick Elbel, said today, the fines announced today are a drop in the ocean compared to the hundreds million dollars of actual costs borne by the state of Victoria for the Hazelwood mine fire, let alone the health impacts felt by the community of the Latrobe Valley. And the community advocate, Wendy Farmer said the total fines were an insult given the cost to the Latrobe Valley residents. We were collateral damage. It doesn't even look at what the cost was to the community. The community is still paying the price. Now, the last piece of irritating news that surfaced came from the Human Rights Electronic Newsletter that I get. Apparently, since 2019... There have been no fines for illegal logging of the Amazon and there has been an increase in logging of 57%, the lungs of the planet being logged indiscriminately. This coincides with the reign of that Prince of Men, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, the far-right climate denier. Just an interesting fact I was so incensed by this data, I looked up Bolsonaro, but being furious, I typed in piece of shit Brazilian President Bolsonaro, and it came back with a page of entries. (laughs) The world we live in.
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. The Mojo Film Festival put on by Skitsy Inc. to celebrate World Schizophrenia Day is going to be on Sunday the 24th of May and it's going to be online this year because of COVID. So I was lucky enough to be able to chat with Michelle Toomey, one of the feature filmmakers on the night. You're part of Skitsy Inc. Uh, and you're a filmmaker and you're part of uh, Mojo Film Festival this year. Can you tell me how you got involved in making films? How did I get involved making films? Um, well, so far, this is the fourth Mojo Film Festival. So I made a film for the second one and one this year, the fourth. And I had this experience of schizophrenia. And, um, yeah, I got involved with Schizophrenia Inc., which is a, uh, an art collective with people with lived experience of schizophrenia. And, yeah, that's how I found myself being part of Schizophrenia Inc. and the Mojo Film Festival. So uh, learning the skills to make films was important? Yes, we've run uh, filmmaking workshops for the last three years and um, yeah it's a very enjoyable pastime to make films for our film festival Mojo Film Festival. Now I know that um, part of this most important element would be the business about being able to express talk about yourself in your films or not yourself but your experience of mental health uh, rather than have someone else make a film about you. Can you explain to me how that all works for you, personally? Uh, I think the filmmakers who are in our group, um, it's, it's a, very soul, a very enriching process to make a film, and all the films that are on show are going to be from people with lived experience. and. I think as the years have gone on from the first Mojo Film Festival, which was three or four years ago, um, people have become empowered by making a short film. The films are uh, around three minutes long, so they're only short, but there's a lot of love that goes into making the films for Mojo. And you all help each other uh, with the making of the films? Well, sometimes we might act in a film if someone needs some actors. Um, but it, the, when the films are submitted, they're, they're looked at and um, we have to be careful with trigger warnings because some things with people with schizophrenia can be a bit overwhelming. So... The, the films are, are very uh, heartwarming and just go to show what people with lived experience of schizophrenia can achieve. So, um, yeah, that's a big part of it, achieving making a short film for Mojo Film Festival. And so the theme this year was Life Interrupted, which because of COVID, a lot of people will be able to um, relate to, I should imagine, Maybe you guys are the experts. Yes, well, we have discussed that, that people with lived experience can spend a lot of time in their own household 
and not really interact with the world. And we have had a few amusing conversations amongst ourselves in Skitsy Inc. saying that the rest of the world are learning what we live with day in, day out. But, um, yeah, I think um, a member of Skitsy Inc., Mitchell, came up with the idea of a life interrupted. And I think when you have schizophrenia, there are, are periods in your life where life is interrupted so that's where the the um meaning for the theme for the films this year but as you say there are uh the COVID-19 um now everyone's life's interrupted so it's turned out to be quite a prophetic uh theme for this year's Mojo Film Festival because a, a lot of there's uh, uh, misconceptions about schizophrenia, aren't there? And uh, th it's possible to use uh, short films like this to get across to the broader community uh, issues of this sort. But also, it's good to have a film festival like Mojo for the community itself, isn't it? Yes, I'll, we hope you know people who don't know anything about. Our, our life with schizophrenia come and watch the films and the films work in two ways they can be made by people with lived experience but at the same time we don't look at ourselves as art therapy <laughs> we're, we're producers mm. of art so that's a distinction that we make within our group so um, yeah yeah I think it is important for the general public to to get on board and to see that people with schizophrenia can contribute to society and they might be a bit surprised by how good the films are. Tell me about your own film because you've got a film in the uh, festival and I know that there's 15. Um, can you tell me about your film? My film? Well, my film's called For Schizophrenia. Um, I'm a golfer and... Uh, through the National Disability Insurance Scheme, I uh, go and see a golf professional, Brendan Green. So we went down to the driving range and my arts mentor, Tanya Smith, uh, took the film and I edited it. And it's just a nice little meditation on the game of golf and just... Uh, sort of showing the relationship that I have with Brendan, which is a it's it's a sporting relationship, but it's also very um what's the word I'm looking for? It it's a very encouraging little story about our relationship and what Brendan's learnt from having me as one of his students. Oh, isn't that interesting? Tell me about your art mentor. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's through the NDIS um, and through Arts Access Victoria, which is a disability uh, group for for art in Victoria. Tanya Smith um, is my arts mentor, and I see her once or twice a week, and she helps me with uh, my artistic vision as well as the business side of art. And... Um, yeah, I had a play on at La Mama called Little Brother Big Sister, which was 
postponed because of COVID-19. But my arts mentor, Tanya, and I were successful in getting a, a grant from Creative Victoria for our, our production at La Mama. So, yeah, the NDIS is a very, for me personally, it's a really great uh, initiative. And, yeah, that's a little story about my arts mentor. So tell me, you, I mean, this opens a door for me. I don't, I didn't know all this stuff and perhaps also for my listeners. Uh, did you uh, have you did you identify mm. yourself as a person who wanted to express through artistic process, or was this something that uh, uh, was suggested to you? No, no, it, it, you do it off your own back. But at Skitsy Inc, we've got uh, poets, we've got uh, we're all filmmakers, uh, comedians, musicians, writers, uh, visual artists. So it's it's very broad. Um, so it's a collective. It's an art collective. Very broad demographic of, of art. Yeah, I, I call it an art collective. That we're not nothing against art therapy, but we consider ourselves an art collective in the sense of we're like anybody else on one level that we're artists in our own yeah. right. Now you said you were the editor. Uh, is that something that you uh, really like doing, editing? I like to edit too. Yes, I like putting little short films together and, um, yeah, it's very enriching, you know, making a film and having it shown, which is the probably another great thing. The making of it's great and then having it shown on at the Mojo Film Festival is is another great uh, opportunity for people with lived experience. The films come from members of Skitsy Inc. and then from people with lived experience of schizophrenia who aren't in our aren't part of Skitsy Inc. So it, the uh, it's a bit broader than just being by Skitsy Inc. It's organised by Skitsy Inc. Oh, as well. interesting. And uh, the thing is that uh, generally for the last four years you've been doing uh, red carpet uh, festival opening uh, night at Acme, but because of COVID it's got to go online and it's going to be on on Sunday on the 24th mm. starting at 7.30. Can you tell us how that all came about? Well, initially the first year the films were in Heidelberg in the shopping oh, centre yeah. in a community space. And then the second year was at Acme at Federation Square, and that was a big red carpet event. And then last year we were at the Melbourne Town oh, right. Hall, which was another red carpet event. And this year we've got the red virtual red carpet event. I should say that... Uh, a big part of Mojo Film Festival is, what do we call it? We call it bling in the sense of you go to an op shop and you get yourself an outfit mm-hmm. and you do get dressed up for the for the red carpet of Mojo Film Sp- Festival. Spruce yourself up. So, um, yes, it's quite, uh, I call it bling, but they've got another word for it, but I can't recall. But um, a lot of the people in our group, Raphael and Duncan and Larissa, who's 
not I don't know if she's part of our group, but they really enjoy getting dressed up and they're they're the bling of Mojo Film Festival. <laughs> Do you have awards or is that something that uh, is not necessary? Um, we have a I've got a couple of little recognitions. Everyone who makes a film gets a little Mojo Film Festival star which you can put on your mantelpiece and uh, oh, that's nice. reflect on on your film. Yeah, there's no competition. No. I, I, but who organised to put it online? How did that happen? Well, um, Heidi Everett is a, a very big driving force amongst Skitsy Inc. And she has... We've got two ladies... Esther, and I'm afraid I've forgotten the other lady's name from Media Mentors, and they've really helped us in setting up the online platform for Mojo Film Festival. Yeah, they've been really great in helping us set up the YouTube channel for the gala event coming up on Sunday evening. So are you going to bling up and get yourself prepared for the evening at 7.30? Uh no, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not a bling person. Sloppy Joe's for you. I might put on a suit. And, yeah. <laughs> One of the great things, we've got a YouTube app on our television, so we'll be able to watch the Mojo Film Festival on, on the television on Sunday night. Thank you very much for spending some time with me, Michelle. All right, thank you. I'll just say, if anyone wants to watch and be part of Mojo Film Festival on Sunday at 20 past seven, just go to YouTube and search Mojo Film Festival and our link will come up and you'll be able to be part of the virtual world, which is Mojo Film Festival 2020. So thanks for having me on your show. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. One of the questions I was wanting to have answered when COVID stay-at-home started and it looked like kids would need to be homeschooled was how would kids with no internet and a computer be able to keep up or is education only for the well-off in a crisis? I spoke to Kate Weller from Community Information and Support Victoria, that's CIS Vic or CIS Vic, whose organisation has been working on advocating for low-income families around the cost of public education uh, to struggling families even before COVID. 
It was Giving Tuesday campaign that put me in touch with Kate. She explains later in our conversation what Giving Tuesday is all about. Thanks for talking to me today, Kate Weller. Um, You're from Community Information and Support Victoria. Uh, People might be interested to know that this is a rebadging of uh, what used to be called the Citizens Advice Bureau. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you guys do? Yeah. So we're um, the peak body representing community information support centres. We've got um, services delivered from over 60 sites in Victoria and they are local centres that provide um, generalist support to people in need. So they provide information, referral, advocacy and support services, which includes emergency relief uh, to people in personal and financial hardship. And I noticed that um, uh, you've... uh, created a you've done you you deal in research as well as uh, uh, actual the hands-on uh, and advocacy for right. a, as a peak body and uh, one of the uh, surveys that you've done is uh, um, being called the strain and the pain which is really looking into uh, the affordability of uh, public schools uh, for people who have come into your services. Can you talk us about this, uh, especially uh, with COVID and homeschooling? Yeah, absolutely. So unfortunately, unfortunately, the reality is that state school education isn't free. There are very real basic costs which prohibit full participation for far too many kids. Um, and they're subsequently left behind, they're excluded and they're further disadvantaged. Um, our agencies provide a lot of support, financial support to families um, with school costs. Um, and so the research that we did for the strain and the pain report was looking at um, the support needs of people uh, with school costs. And um, you know, over the research period, there was a staggering 84% of families accessing our services for support during November through to February were doing so because of the cost of education. They were either out of pocket and had no money to buy food because they'd paid education bills or they um, couldn't couldn't cover the, um, the education costs from their budget. So this was something that we already knew was an issue, that school costs are just really prohibitive for families on low incomes. And then it, um, as the COVID lockdown unfolded and subsequent homeschooling, we found that this issue was really compounded um, because it revealed the depth of the digital divide for disadvantaged kids. Kids were suddenly having to use devices and internet connection to participate in school and it just revealed how few students have, you know, have access to those kinds of that technology. So we're talking about equipment, and we're talking about e-bundles, and we're talk- we're talking about e-textbooks, and uh, as well as generally being online. You you already found this to be the case yeah. before COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so our research showed that one in five. Uh, families were struggling to buy devices or have the internet connection that their kids needed. And um, and while they were homeschooling, of course, that the reality was those kids didn't have access to the school material and content or the capacity to do their work. And it was interesting because I was reading through the report and there were things like, uh, in grade one, my child need an iPad. 
but after two years they had to go uh, upgrade to a, uh, a um, portable, you know, a different type of device. Um, mm, and, a different, yeah. yeah and um, these were requirements of the school and, and even worse, it was so heartbreaking to read the effects psychologically and uh, also in terms of the self-esteem of uh, people uh, being pressured and bullied, not just by the uh, fellow students yeah. because of difference, but this the school itself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there, there were very strong things about children feeling um, marginalised, feeling social shame, low confidence, stress, anxiety, sadness. So really, um, really strong things, which it illustrated how strongly educational exclusion and social exclusion are connected. Um, and that this is deeply affecting young people but the, the, the... and is going to have, uh, you know, an impact on on their educational outcomes. Also, it, it says something quite uh, disgraceful about expectations within society and society uh, not actually uh, doing what it needs to do to have a, a, um, yeah. a competent and sustainable society. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, um, we have a society that has a state school education system, which is saying education is a right. But unfortunately, it's not a right. It's not something that people can access properly. Um, the, the costs are just too prohibitive and it's having an enormous um, impact on families and their personal and financial um, circumstances. And individualising blame to those uh, for uh, <laughs> not succeeding, being uh, social outside society, those types of issues go down the line. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We we would like to see us um, that our state school system was properly funded so that standard curriculum was free, um, and that kids or families who didn't have capacity to pay weren't going to be excluded and weren't going to be further left behind. Now, uh, when you did do your surveys, people talked about things like, and people, my listeners might be aware of these things, the state school relief system and the camp sport and excursion, excursion yeah. funds, but they don't cover it, do they? Yeah. No, definitely not. Um, state school relief can provide great packages in terms of um, uniform items, um, but, you know, it, it will never it will never mean that someone gets all the uniform, article, uh, uniform articles that they need or all of the stationery that they need. People, you know, there are some support services um, that have been embedded into the education pr um, program, but they just don't cover all of the costs. Now, it's interesting because uniforms being another discussion, really, but, you know, it's often said that uniforms help to create conformity and uh, make people feel that they're the same, you know, so that there's no competition within a school framework. Yeah. But in actual fact, it's a huge burden yeah. uh, economically. Uh, and it, on another level, it uh, differentiates people who cannot afford to keep the, their uniforms up to spec, and we're talking about oh, we're talking about and public we schools. See... We're talking about public schools here, state yeah, schools. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think we see that that's a problem when um, individual schools decide that they're going to have a unique 
uniform that will only be able to be purchased from a uniform specialist shop where schools don't allow for those generic um, uniform items which can be, be purchased at any major department store, the cost just escalates. Um, so, you know, we would love to see more state schools have a more responsible, ethically responsible uniform policy that's fairer for people. So let's get back to COVID. Yeah, we, we, in our re- oh, sorry, go on. Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go on. Oh, no, that's all right. It's, um, in our research, I mean, it, some of the comments were that we, you know, parents couldn't afford particular uniform items like a blazer, which can be in excess of $100. Oh, yeah. If you have, if you mm. have one child, it's hard enough. But what if you had more? And your research yeah. shows that they, people exactly. do have more children. Also, um, I mean, there's a certain yeah. social social um, control mechanism going on with this. Uh, there's so many issues going on in this kind of discussion. Let's go back to COVID and the homeschooling and the fact that there are a whole mm. lot of people that were really heavily impacted at, because they didn't have access. Uh, can you uh, yeah. have you any idea of any outcomes or what what has uh, the government become aware of its deficiency? Um, look, I think the state government um, initiatives have helped. Like they they did target Year Twelve students. It was about targeting the most two hundred and fifty of the most disadvantaged schools. But they, so they were ensuring that. Lap- laptops were available for year 12 students in those schools and then encouraging um, the local schools to support families. But um, we've certainly found that um, people in financial hardship often feel really uncomfortable or don't get a good response from a school when they go to them to talk about it. So um, it's not always the environment where they feel most comfortable to say, we can't afford to pay bills. We haven't got enough money to feed the children. We need assistance for a device. Um, so we've we um, yeah we've certainly found that um, that there are kids who are falling through the gaps. So there have been government initiatives to support with technology. Um, there has been some extra support from state school relief for um, digital. Um, devices, so oh, sorry, um, like data, which is great. But you know, if you've got a family with three kids and they can only afford one device, you know, across the day, that's one device that's got to be shared between the, the kids to do their homework. Or, you know, even in rural areas, we were hearing of um, kids would have devices and would have uh, no internet connection because of where they lived. So people were further disadvantaged because of geography. Um, so unfortunately, we just we saw that there were still people falling through the gaps. So would you say that so, going back to school, of course. So the charity paradigm. I mean, it's a, it's there's there's a concept of a sort of a sense of charity involved in this, as opposed to right. There should be a, a change of psychological. Uh, 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 there should be a change in the way it's conceptualised. Yeah the uh, fill, filling yeah. of these needs. I, I don't know if I've said that correctly, but do you, yeah. do you understand what I'm saying? No, I think you're right. Yeah, if we're saying that, that it, access to education is a right, then it's also a right, therefore, to have the, um, the means to participate in that education. 
COVID, of course, has thrown, you know, such a curveball that, you know, we none of us were really prepared for. Um, and I think schools, you know, have generally done a good kind of um, responding quite well in the way that they've had to suddenly modify programs. But, you know, as, as we've said, there are gaps and kids are missing out. I mean, it, it, it reminds you of Oliver Twist. Please, sir, can I have more? I mean, it shouldn't be like that. People shouldn't have to go there and, and embarrass themselves. Yeah, yes, it is the, the sad reality. Yeah, well, it, yeah. it should be changing. It, it shouldn't, uh, you know, it, public education is a right, as you say. It's a, it, it should be um, yeah. recognised as such. Let's go to Giving Tuesday. Now, Giving Tuesday is a, 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 all through this uh, month has been uh, organising to uh, try and uh, raise people's awareness of community uh, funding needs for organisations that you are yeah. uh, part of. Uh, can you talk to uh, why you yeah. uh, joined in that? Yeah, look, I think um, Giving Tuesday has been a, a wonderful international movement that's encouraging people to give to causes and whether it's giving their time, their resources, their money. Um, it's great at helping raise awareness of issues and where people can go to um, to give to those causes. So for us, it was a really kind of natural tie in to look at school costs and giving Tuesday now and looking at the impact of um, homeschooling for disadvantaged families um, and using it as an opportunity to launch our report but also to, to raise money for school costs. So our campaign will be focusing on um, raising money to buy devices and um, data packs for kids who are disadvantaged and um, and even though school goes back um, and there's less pressure to be doing that homeschooling, there is a score still need for kids to have that access. And so that's May the 26th. And uh, there's a register, isn't there, of uh, the names of organisations that people can specifically give uh, help to? That's right. So I think what's been fantastic is Giving Tuesday has, um, you know, traditionally something that happens in um, December, but um, they've decided in emergency situations like the COVID pandemic that um, Giving Tuesday Now, which runs for the month of May, um, and helps us promote different ways of give, that people can give in their local communities, but then also to target um, and fundraise activities and social causes. So, um, yes, for us, it's school costs um, and our hashtag school costs will help people find where to donate. Thanks very much for talking to me, Kate. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. The first time ever the dark and the 
Community Radio. 855 AM. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434-136-501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434-136-501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. A weak solidarity Brecky team listener, when we left the government last week swaying precariously between supporting our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, in attacking evil China politically and our dependence on not-so-evil China economically. And this week, the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, has made the impossible task even more impossible by attempting to balance on the bars with a giant dinosaur, posing a danger to the dinosaur and himself, as well as the bar itself. Angus, what are you doing? Balance. We must have balance. Uh, but, But what about the dinosaur? We must have the dinosaur if we're going to have balance. But what if the sun burns it or or the wind blows it off? That would be a tragedy for the dinosaur economy, for balance. Ah! And with that, he lost his and crashed onto the mat. On the evil China, good China balance, the minister for being totally useless, Simon Birmingham Amanar, pleaded with good China to cease its trade war. Bali, he yelled, or would have yelled if his Chinese counterpart didn't totally ignore him. While the evil China balance was rendered even more precarious, teetering dangerously, as evil China accused True Blue Aussie, talk about unsubstantiated fantasies, of being a dog of the US of. An allegation scotched immediately by the US of ambassador, who said the world listened to True Blue Aussie when we speak. 
and will continue to listen to True Blue Aussie as long as True Blue Aussie continues to listen to our orders. Also on balance, industrial relations charging out of balance with that decision Wednesday. We recall discussing on the week that was before the last election, then Minister for Caring Business Class Relations Kelly Oderwire Workers So Evil intervening in a case to challenge an earlier ruling that casual workers who are really permanent workers have a right to entitlements like holiday pay, sick leave, all the entitlements of full-time workers, which sent caring employers into apoplexy. Well, this week, the court ruled that way again, leading poor caring employers to declare the economy would collapse entirely, which many of us thought it had. And the now minister, Christian Portaloo, said the government, having lost the case, would legislate to make the decision redundant, change the law it just lost, prompting us to ask, why waste all that time and expense on the case in the first place and leading us to remind ourselves, what does the separation of powers mean again? The government accuses these workers of double dipping and in its balanced way, Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 headline showed where it stands on the issue. Workers can double dip, it headlined. Balance. On caring employers and balance, that epitome of balance, the telly news at the weekend excitedly showed people enjoying the relaxation of restrictions and isolation and showed in many cases people also believing they could relax social distancing. The news referred to pacing for an outbreak and the state health minister, health of the economy minister, it's inevitable that we will have more outbreaks. They showed just how important it is to get the greatest little economic order of them all resuscitated. Much more important than more outbreaks, but at least the sick and dying can feel relaxed that they are suffering a little bit of illness and death for a truly great cause. Tis a far, far greater thing I do. And as the resuscitation of the really needy, filthy, filthy, rich, caring business class gathers pace, We'd know great socialist figures like former Socialist Party State Supremo Steve Brakes on wages would insist the trade unions must be involved in protecting workers' rights as the caring business class government ignores the evil unions, wouldn't we? Well, Steve, who enjoys a neat little earner over and above his not ungenerous parliamentary pension as chair of union fund CBUS and on the industry True Blue Aussie board, has seen the light. He says the Socialist Party should ignore the trade union movement in developing policies post-pandemic. He's obviously, like the government, realised just how evil unions are, like the government. But, but hang on, the government says it wants to work with good trade unions and the ACTU, involve the unions who have stopped being evil, continue the cooperation that has led to flexibility in wages and conditions, which... Our old mate, Small Business Profits Association, Supremo Peter Strongarm, the workers and other sensible practitioners of the greatest little order, tell us, show how caring employers have been ripped off for years and the concessions made by evil unions must be made permanent. So the government wants the cooperation to continue to prevent caring employers being ripped off, which may mean that Steve and Pete and the caring business class government aren't all that far apart. So if the Socialist Party takes Steve's advice, or probably even if it doesn't, then again it could be a healthy win-win for the caring business class and the caring business class, and therefore all of us. 
while Steve urges the trade union movement be ignored in policy making, ju- just remind me, uh, in his industry superpositions, who um, who provides the neat little earner he, he receives? And after the parvenu fast food and retail union had an agreement with fast food behemoth McDonald's rejected on the specious grounds that it ripped off the mostly young workers, the long-term union, the shop, the workers' union and the ACTU, which backed the slashing of wages and conditions, now say they feel there may be a case for a few changes, again leaving us to ask how come they missed the problems they've now noticed in the first place? On good, healthy salt, sugar and fat junk food, I think the week that was has for far too long concentrated on the unimportant, the not-so-important things in life like industrial matters, climate change, train killing, those sort of irrelevancies. So I thought it time to discuss the truly important, like the commercial tele-channel excitedly alerting us three weeks to Big Bubba, and next week it'll be two weeks. Now, I thought Big Brother had sunk to such depths that even the locked-on reality TV addicts, well, so-called reality, which is about as real as a flying saucer, addicts had even unlocked themselves. But Big B is back, and here's the salt, sugar, and bad fat connection. It's being sponsored by KFC, creating the perfect scenario. Sit back watching Big Brother with a bucket of the sponsor's crap, and we can wipe out our minds and bodies simultaneously. Brain dead and body dead. Win-win. Another win-win, or at least not lose-lose, the man who realized we were facing a pandemic before anyone else in the whole world, U.S. of big supremo Donald Trump the poor, who obviously didn't want to create panic by sharing his knowledge with those who would perish in the pandemic he alone foresaw. Biggest only person ever, ever, has now come up with a win-win, can't-lose-lose solution, as he is in, he's keeping himself healthy by taking hydroxychloroquine, which might do him some good if, um, if, if, if he's got malaria. Although Donald said, even if it doesn't work, you're not going to get sick and die, unlike the 90,000 and growing who have got sick and died of that which the only man who knew forgot to tell them. Although medical experts, but <laughs> what would they know compared to Donald, warn it has serious side effects, including heart arrhythmia. So when we think about it, we should encourage Donald to keep using it and maybe eject himself with a liter or two of disinfectant, that other miracle cure he discovered. Also a fan of hydroxychloroquine is a very, very close friend, a great man. He's done great things, like agree with me, best agree ever, ever. Brazilian Supremo Joe Bolsonaro, who knows it isn't a pandemic, but a little flu which flew through and is flying through his population more than just a little. But his supporters came out this week to agree with him, having composed a truly beautiful song just for the occasion. Chloroquine, I know you saved me in the name of Jesus. So moving, so beautiful. And thanks to Chloroquine and the dear baby Jesus, they should be as safe as, as, say, Angus tailings up there with the dinosaur. And as a bonus, the experts who know predict that Chloroquine, I know you saved me in the name of Jesus will dominate this year's Grammys when and if they are held. Amid the relentless campaign by the caring business class that giving them a boost is far more important than a few more deaths and illness, 
The latest target is the states that refuse to reopen their borders. Selfish, selfish premiers, despite speaking of death and illness, many respectable practitioners of the greatest little order pointing out it stops them making a killing. So finally, let's finish with our own beautiful composition. Jesus knows it's a true win-win. We'll all be saved by chloroquine. Not to use it is the sin. And balance means we need lots more of Angus Tailings' dinosaur. What a beautiful finally. Good morning. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. This is Annie and you are listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. About a month ago I had a chat with Solidarity Breakfast regular Dr Noah Pazil up in Sydney. I caught up with Noah again, now, a month later, to get his reflections on the COVID world as it has been developing. So it's been a whole month now since we've spoken. Uh, what's been occurring to you about the whole affair? Well, has it been a whole month? Okay. It, it, it's hard to know whether... It almost seems like time stand, standing still at the moment. Um, um, oh, I, mean, I mean, the most obvious thing, I think, Annie, is the rapidity of which um, governments in many parts of the world are trying to get people back to work and normality, despite a lot of evidence, scientific and otherwise, that um, we're far from seeing the peak of the pandemic. There seems to be this huge shift in a number of places where uh, we, where there was a uh, sort of a, a commitment to lockdown and eliminating the virus to, well, people are going to die now. The most important thing is to get on with the economy. So um, that's probably been the most obvious thing over the last few weeks. Um, I think the other thing, of course, is the way that the, um, what we call them, the sort of right-wing uh, proto-fascist movements in many parts of the world are starting to step up their violence against the lockdown orders in places like the US in particular. Um, I've read it's happening in Hungary, uh, Brazil. So countries that, um, that have these right-wing populist leaders who protect or sanction, encourage um, these movements or these groups, I wouldn't call them movements, these groups um, to um, 
to, to sort of commit extrajudicial violence of one type or another, are sort of egging them on now to do this sort of thing, not so much in the same way against workers' organisations, even though that's still going, um, but against uh, attempts to um, maintain some sort of commitment to preserving human life, which I think is an interesting uh, change. The other thing, now that it comes to mind, the other thing which uh, I think is um, also evident is the way that the xenophobic and racist um, targeting of China in particular as the cause of the crisis or of the pandemic um, has escalated in the last few weeks as well especially from the U.S. I was uh, curious about the U.S. in particular. Uh, it, they've been talking about how there's been high, high rates of death amongst uh, uh, Hispanic and uh, black populations and also Native American populations uh, and that there has been a change, particularly in the federal government in uh, America and in other parts, as if... Oh, well, they don't matter. Yes, yes. I mean, well, in a way, um, the pandemic has... Or not in a way. Um, the pandemic does hit impoverished communities a lot harder than, um, than socioeconomic groups at the top of the... Um, economic order um, and I think partly partly I, it's hard to say but my um, instincts would tell me that um, the sudden loosening of restrictions and the commitment to get the economies going again is partly a response to or a partly a realisation that um the pandemic doesn't hit every community equally um, and that if the burden is going to be felt by poorest communities, well, that's okay. There was an article last week by Janet Albertson, who's uh, well known for her uh, articles in the early 2000s after 9-11 that attempted to, well, not attempted, that were real dog-whistling against uh, Muslims in Australia and globally. And if you remember quite well, um, the Media Watch episode that uh, revealed the extent that she had uh, manipulated uh, or uh, mis misrepresented findings from a major sociological report in France around gang violence and teenage uh, and um, and rape uh, to um, to highlight here in Australia the threat of um, Muslim men to to non-Muslim women. And the French report said quite clearly that it was gang violence that they were uh, or gang um, behaviour, not Muslim gang behaviour. She added the word Muslim to the report that she presented in the Australian. But she's now also the director of the Institute for Public Affairs. She wrote last week that um, 
you know, in, in I guess in many ways, uh, paralleling the normal neoliberal argument that um, the natural order, in the market, in particular, uh, rewards people who deserve it with with wealth, and people who deserve to be poor uh, treated in the same way by the market and impoverished. You know, this idea of uh, the natural order being and the market being a symbolic of the essence of the natural order and she was saying the same thing about COVID in some ways that um, people who die from COVID um, and this is my interpretation of what she said um, uh, you know in a, in a way it was a social Darwinist argument that the weakest uh, and the, the strongest will survive and the weakest will not um, and I think there is an element here where the sort of neoliberal philosophy or, you know, if you want to call it that, or ideology around social Darwinism is coming out in the government, some government responses and some right-wing responses to COVID-19. Certainly Bolsonaro, the, the stuff I've read on Xiao, Bolsonaro Brazil and Donald Trump suggests that the two of them are at the forefront of promulgating this idea. And there's a lot, of course, there's a toxic masculinity element to that as well, that real men don't get sick. Oh my goodness, what a miserable woman she is. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, I, it struck me that uh, the reason why I brought up America in particular uh, is I was really bothered, and as it is bothersome, about the uh, terrible murder of the uh, young black jogger. And, um, uh, yes. And uh, the three people involved, one, one filming, a father and a son stalking, and uh, the man having a, a, um, a powerful gun that he should in a, in a domestic street. And uh, on the uh, Facebook page mm -hmm. that was reporting it, there were these comments saying, oh, we don't see the beginning of the altercation uh, but it does seem, you know, quite troublesome that this should have been the outcome. And I was thinking, uh, and then um, uh, Robert Reich wrote a note saying uh, something about uh, it's a terrible thing that a person uh, is jogging, but it's okay for a person to have an AK rifle or whatever it was in, in, a, in a domestic street. Uh, and I was thinking about that, those Americans who were involved in the shooting. What would it be like to be in the head of people who would hunt down a person in a domestic street because he was a young black man? What's going on in their head? Uh, well, there's hundreds of years of um, inculcation of uh, black danger and white entitlement involved in that moment um, you know the whole Black Lives Matter campaign was really an attempt to identify the extent that the deep structural racism of, of the US's history um, is still evident everywhere in the country um, and that this impunity that white people have in regards to, or the impunity they have, or they feel they have, in regards to protecting their own safety from especially black men, um, and the way that the, um, 
sort of order, the US political and legal order, allow this to happen is just, um, you know, to, to me, just mind boggling that after the 150 years since the end of um, slavery, well, the formal end, the abolition of slavery, um, and 60 odd years after civil rights, uh, that we can still have this, this deep structural racism pervading so much of US life. It is quite an, I mean, and I say that, and here we are in Australia, a country where we have a similar um, history of racism towards Indigenous people that allows for all sorts of behaviour towards, um, uh, towards people of colour that we wouldn't never um, contemplate for, for white Australians. I mean, the intervention of Northern Territory is the most obvious, but by no means the only example of how we have this racist, uh, deeply racist system in Australia as well. So, I mean, whilst it's shocking um, to hear of these sort of murders, it's also quite easily explained in the way that the US this history of racism has, has not really been properly, properly counted or challenged. The reason why I bring it up, no, no, but the reason why I bring Sorry, no, it up no. is about COVID as well, because uh, it's like unleashing the dogs of war. The things, uh, a piece of anxiety, uh, there's anxiety and therefore these outcomes are allowed to happen. Um, like there are only about 12% of the American population is black and in Australia it's even smaller popul uh, percentage of people are First Nations people. What would happen in a country like uh, America if it didn't have a very small minority of people to attack? What I mean and and what would happen in a country like that when you get a pandemic when you didn't have someone else dying? Well, I mean, you know, the, the reality is that on a globe, there's also the global, I mean, you raise good points on the national level, but there's also the global element of this. I and mean, I was listening to a news report the, about a week or two ago on the impact of COVID in Haiti. You know, Haiti is one of the most impoverished countries in the world. A number of people, a large number of people rely on um, uh, aid of some type uh, to survive. And I was talking to some people in Haiti who were saying, well, we can't have lockdown here. If I can't go out and scavenge food or earn a few dollars doing, you know, bits and pieces, I'm not going to be able to provide food for my family. You know, so, you know, on a global level, what we're also seeing is, uh, a, you know, a huge uh, disparity between the way that wealthy, industrialised, uh, societies are able to deal with COVID and the way that poor and uh, unindustrialized or poor impoverished nations are unable to deal with it. Um, and, you know, I guess the other level of this and why the US is interesting is because we're seeing this real dichotomy of responses to it that is, you know, in a way reflective of um, a whole range, and dichotomy is maybe not even a, the right word, this real spectrum of responses at state level um, to 
Okay, everyone's been focused on Trump, but of course, many of the states are responsible for, like in Australia, setting the um, levels of restrictions or not. And the U.S. in many ways is reflected of the huge differences in the in responses around the world from the hugely authoritarian ones in Hungary, where Viktor Orbán has um, basically given himself the power to rule by decree and suspended parliament, and to those in um, places like New Zealand, where you know the uh, the human outcomes have been uh, prioritised, and you know Australia is somewhere in between. Uh, in most places in Australia, towards the um, better outcomes, but that's largely, I think, also a result of uh, good fortune, as it is good politics, in that we're a large country, we're not as urbanised. It hit us in summer. Um, and, you know, to some extent, the capacity to deal with the crisis has been fairly well managed, both at state and federal level. Um, but, yeah, across the world, um, there's been a huge disparity in the way that, it's, that the crisis has been dealt with. I mean, Russia, again, another country that we're seeing um, day by day um, the impact of, uh, um, you know, sort of a really myopic egotistic leadership that has no real concerns for a population whatsoever um, and uh, the disaster that's looming in that country I think is uh, is one that uh, might make the US and pale into insignificance when we're when we're looking at this in in, um, in yeah a it's curious because uh, it doesn't seem to have uh, caused any uh, real damage to the power elites that uh, have a, a hold on the uh, capitalist system? No, I don't think it has. I mean, this is the thing. These crises actually are opportunities for capital to remake the power relations. Now, I mean, this is a really important moment historically, as many are. But really, the question is, how can, how do progressive forces, and this, I mean, here I mean class, uh, minorities, and a whole range of others that are environmentalists that have sort of coalesced around the progressive, um, um, you know, sort of uh, framework over the last few years, the last couple of decades, how do they reposition themselves in some unified way to deal with the response to COVID from the ruling the ruling elite from capital, and at the moment I'm not seeing any indication that um, that this is happening, and that uh, I think is is part of the worrying trend. Here we, I, I mean, I, my, I don't know what will happen in Australia, but what we're seeing at the moment are signs that the um, the capitalist class and the intellectuals that speak on their behalf, whether it be right-wing think tanks, politicians, media, are all gearing up for a post-COVID assault on uh, workers' rights, tax, regulation, uh, national, nationally held, uh, or, the, or the sectors of the economy that are still held by the state. And I would not be surprised in 12 or 18 months' time whether we go, whether, uh, you know, that we look back and we go, hang on a sec, 
everything's been privatised, lots been deregulated, the state, the, the welfare system has been shrunk even further, um, workers' rights have been um, assaulted, and here we are at the end of this crisis actually with capital in a much stronger position than it was in at the, at the outset. And Labor and the Greens at the moment have been fairly quiet on how to move beyond COVID in a progressive way. And that's the worrying trend that, in fact, what we're seeing from Christina Keneally, Anthony Albanese and a number of other people in the Labor Party in particular is the Liberal agenda light rather than an alternative blueprint for a post-COVID Australia. And that's what's most worrying here. Yes, also at the same time, further cuts to the ABC. And whatever you think about the ABC, uh, the uh, removal of uh, its brains trust and the uh, 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 putting into their place a whole lot of uh, uh, Murdoch's minions is making the ABC into... uh, a sheltered workshop, if you ask me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this has been the Murdoch agenda since the 1970s, to privatise yep. or get rid of the ABC. And it's been ongoing, relentless, ruthless, and as we sit here now, this could be, you know, the final death throes of public broadcasting in Australia because there's nothing like a crisis of this scale to allow politicians to do the unthinkable, uh, or what was unthinkable prior to the crisis. And you can already see the knives out. Um, how do you save some billions of dollars at a time when you've got to make up 130 of them? Well, well, the ABC is dispensable, so let's get rid of it. And you can, you know, this is what this is where the left, and I mean the Labor Party and the Greens in particular, as the political organs of progressive politics in Australia have to actually get moving and stand up for uh, the rights of people and of um, some sort of uh, project here that's not going to be subsumed by the interest of capital and in particular a very narrow element of the capitalist class, the very, very wealthy element of it. And um, I'm not seeing any signs of this yet. Instead, they're uh, targeting immigration and um, regulation and taxes. I mean, you know, I don't see this as really providing an alternative uh, platform on which to rally support. Hmm. That's not. Yeah. Not much. Not much uh, cheer in this. In this, is there? No. I think more anger at the moment. And I think this is where maybe we need to start to move. Is not from some sort of apathy or antipathy or whatever you want to call it. Um, to what's happening, apathy is the wrong word, but some sort of sense of fatalism, but rather a sense of anger about how not so much targeted the Liberal Party, we know what the Liberal Party means, who it represents and what its aims are, but actually um, anger at the political uh, representatives of the of progressive forces in Australia, or pro- progressive uh, people in Australia, for them to stand up and... Uh, at this moment, because um, without that, then there really is no alternative but the neoliberal one, and more of it, much more of it, and that's not that's not a good outcome for any for any any of us. Okay, well we'll leave it at, on that note, and we'll talk again.
in the future to see how things have developed. I hope so. A determined community campaign over five years won the ban on fracking and a moratorium on onshore gas drilling for Victoria. It was a great victory for grassroots people power, but now the Victorian government has decided to lift the moratorium on onshore drilling, even though its own report admits it won't bring down gas prices. Even worse, they want to open up the west coast of the state to offshore gas drilling. It's essential we stand up now and make it clear that the time for new fossil fuels is over. Join the campaign by checking the Friends of the Earth website at www.melbournefo.org.au slash gas. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. That's all we have got for you this morning. We found out about the Mojo Film Festival, which is screening on Sunday, May the 29th. That's this Sunday, starting at 7.30pm. Go to YouTube and put Mojo Film Festival in the search bar for a good time. We found out about Community Information and Support Victoria, CISFIC, and their work helping to supply low-income families close the education digital divide, especially during COVID. You can help out by logging on to Giving Tuesday website to donate. Uh, there's a special day on May the 26th, of course. That's uh, been going on all through May, uh, and uh, that's the last Tuesday of May. Um, obviously, it's not the only time you can support them. Uh, Kevin gave us a lowdown on the week, and Dr Noah Basil gave us food for thought Next week, I know for a fact we will be talking about the victory for workers when the courts retained the definition of what is a casual and what is a worker entitled to holiday pay, sick leave, etc., etc., despite the avaricious workers, to quote Kevin Healy. Talk to you next week. Keep safe. Despite the uh, um, slackening of uh, the... uh, Shut down. Uh, don't be too foolhardy. That's my advice. Uh, cheers <laughs> from Annie. <laughs>
Are you coming home? Hello? Is anybody home? Well, you don't know me. But I know you. And I've got a message to give to you. Here come the plane. So you better get ready, ready to go. You can come as you are, pay as you go, pay as you go. said, okay, who is this really? And the voice said, this is the hand, the hand that takes. This is the hand. Here come the plane. Is there American planes made in America? Smoking? Oh, non smoking. And the voice said, Neither snow nor rain, nor blue night, shall stay these holiness from swift completion of their appointed Cause when love is gone, there's always justice. And when justice is gone, there's always force.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.